Good evening. Good evening. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. We are in our second study in the series of studies in the book of Ezra. So you can turn with me to the book of Ezra. And if you don't know where the book of Ezra is, you can check the front of your Bibles. They usually have a table of contents. Or if you're like me, you have the little Bible with the little tabs so you can find everything. Most people don't um, no, I get most people, I mean, not in this church, but many people don't even know there is a book of Ezra. But I'll tell you, it's a fascinating book, and it deals with the return of the captives, the Jewish captives, after the Babylonian captivity. And uh, we saw last week in our opening study in chapters 1 and 2 that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, were given the opportunity because of an edict by Cyrus the Persian to return to their homeland, to return to the land of what at that time was called Judah or Judea. And uh, what we're going to do is pick it up then in verse 1 of chapter 3. And I like this chapter a lot. It's a short little chapter, but there's one particular section of this chapter that really touches my heart. And the chapter as a whole has to deal with the, uh, or deals with the rebuilding of the temple. This would be the second temple, for the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And here we are, years later, and we're seeing that, in fact, I guess this uh, beginning of this process begins around 538, 539 B.C. So we're going to go through the next couple of years, hundreds of years, of Jewish history And as we go through that, we'll be introduced to Ezra, Nehemiah, and others. But at this point, we're going to talk about that first return that took place early on, shortly after Cyrus declared his edict to be able, for the Jews to be able to go back and rebuild their temple. And so let's open in a word of prayer, and we'll get right into it this evening. Lord Heavenly Father, as we consider the return of your people to their land, the land of Israel, we realize that that happened again, even within the last hundred years. But it's also a type for us, and we can return again to the things of of you, the the promises that you've made to us, and the desire you, you have to work through us, Lord. We ask that you would just give us an understanding of your word and your will for our lives, that we might return to the things that you've called us to. So as we study, may we be inspired and encouraged to do the work that you've called us to do, the work of your Spirit, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3 in the book of Ezra. We read there that when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Yeshua, son of Josedach, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shaltiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. We start with seeing the people of Israel rebuilding the brazen altar. Now, if you're not familiar with the temple, both the tabernacle and Solomon's temple, were both designed with a brazen altar, an altar of sacrifice made out of bronze or brass, outside the temple proper. And it was there that the animals were slain, and the carcasses and the meat of the animals were burned and either consumed on the altar, 
or some portions were cooked on the altar and then shared with the priests and the Levites, or even shared with the individuals that brought those animals for sacrifice, depending on whether the sacrifice was a burnt offering or consecration offering, where all of the animal was given to God and therefore consumed on the altar, or a sin or trespass offering, which was a a payment, if you will, a covering for sin. The blood was shed, but then the meat was given to the Levites and to the priests. And then we also had fellowship offerings or peace offerings where the people brought the animals. They were slain. They were uh, cooked on the altar. And then they were sent home with the meat. The rest of the animal was consumed on the altar, but the meat was sent home with the people who had made the offering. So these are the types of offerings that were made on the altar. And this altar was the first thing they built after not having had a temple for nearly 50 years. I find it interesting that the people of Israel prioritized restoring sacrificial worship. Their priority, after they got settled in their towns, after having returned, after 70 years of captivity, their priority was to restore sacrificial worship. Now, there's a principle there that we need to remember, and that is that worship is the priority. We call our services on Sundays and Wednesdays worship services. And they're worship services because if you look at our bulletin, you know, we can worship the Lord through all types of different activities. Singing, yes, we worship the Lord in song. We can worship the Lord through the study of his word. We can worship the Lord in fellowship. We can worship the Lord in service. We can worship the Lord in giving and in missions. We can do so many things, and these things are acts of worship. But in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Jews worship through sacrifice. Now, we don't worship through this type of sacrifice, the sacrifice of blood, uh, or the blood of bulls, goats, and rams. It doesn't take away sin. There is, there is no looking for the blood of animals to be the atonement anymore because Christ died once and for all. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. So that sacrifice has been made. So no, we don't look for a blood sacrifice anymore. And let's be clear, even communion is a remembrance of the blood sacrifice of Christ. And he said from the cross, it is finished. So there remains no more sacrifice for sins. There doesn't need to be any more sacrifices. But the Jews worshiped through sacrifice because Christ had not yet come. So think about this from our perspective. I even think about recently when we were not allowed because of the edicts of our government, we were not allowed here in the state of New Jersey to to, to quote-unquote gather for worship inside when the ridiculousness reigned supreme and people were losing their minds for whatever reason and thinking that somehow this would keep us all from getting sick and pretty much everybody was going to get sick got sick anyway. But the first thing the devil does is realize, well, if I can keep God's people from worshiping God, that'll be a real bonus. So what happened? Well, we were told we couldn't worship. Many churches defied those edicts. And we were able, thankfully, we didn't really have to defy the edict because we were able to worship outside in our parking lot for, I'm forgetting, I think it was 22 weeks. We were outside. God gave us great weather. I think we only had two weeks that were even questionable rain-wise. 
And uh, while it was at times cold and other times hot, we were out there worshiping God. And many people have said to me, you know, can we go back outside? That was great, you know. Uh, So we didn't lose anything. I mean, yes, for 10 weeks, we kind of backed off and we were online and that was really horrible. Couldn't wait to stop doing that. Some churches are still doing that, I think, to their own detriment and to the detriment of many of their followers, uh, many of the people who attend their church. But regardless of that, I think it's really interesting because the devil knew, I got to keep God's people from worshiping him. And what had happened for this amount of time during those 70 years of captivity and nearly 50 of them, the temple had been destroyed and so there was no more worship. Now I want you to imagine that. Oh, they could worship the God, the God that they served in, in, in ways that were praise and worship, but what they couldn't do was sacrifice. They couldn't worship God according to the law. And so for nearly 50 years, they did not have a true sacrificial worship service. So now that they have gotten the okay, the edict has gone forth, and they have an opportunity to rebuild their temple, what do they do? They rebuild the brazen altar first. Now let's be clear, their first priority was to settle their families in their towns, which we're told they did. They could not have properly assembled until they had settled things at home. So they relocated from, you know, halfway across the area of the Middle East, uh, from the area of Babylon to the area of the Middle East, Judah, or, or, you know, Judea. And they wanted to worship the Lord, but they wanted to worship the Lord without the distraction of familial responsibility. So they needed to make sure that everything was taken care of first. They did. And then they came together in unity to worship the Lord as one body. And the very next priority was to praise and worship the Lord according to his word. What they did is they looked to the word of the Lord for direction and to no one else. Now listen, don't let anyone tell you how to worship the Lord. Don't let myself or anyone else tell you how to worship the Lord. But the word of God will tell you how to worship. In the old covenant, it was through blood sacrifice, clearly. In the new covenant, it's the sacrifice of praise in the finished work of Christ. Again, through song and spiritual songs, hymns, psalms. Yes, there are many ways through music to worship God, but not just through worship. Not, or praise and worship as we know it in music or song. We can worship God, which is our reasonable service, by submitting our lives according to the book of Romans in chapter 12. So understand the act of worship means surrender to God. The word praise means to tell the truth about God, to say the things that are true about God, to lift him up. And as you say anything that's true about God, it is automatically praise because he's worthy of our praise. And so I just want to make it clear, this was the priority But they looked to God's word when it came to their style of worship, when it came to what they did during worship, and we would be wise today within the church to do likewise. There are a lot of things taking place in the modern church that don't belong in a worship service. And I'm not going to get into particulars, but it suffices to say that you should look to the word of God. And if things took place in God's word during a time of worship, then... I can see you making a case for those things taking place today, with the exception of things like animal sacrifice. But there are things happening or so-called worship that really don't belong in a church or in a worship service. And so I would just say, rather than me getting 
through a list of things that I think are good or bad. Just look to the Word of God. If you see something that doesn't agree with your spirit, here or anywhere, and you can't find it in the Word of God, it's a good bet it probably doesn't belong in the house of God. But they worship the Lord through sacrifices, the very sacrifices commanded in the law of Moses. They needed to build the brazen altar in order to properly worship the Lord. Without it, they couldn't. And they worship the Lord according to his word. So vitally important. Well, here's what we read in verses 3 through 6. We read there that despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. Now, on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Interesting, the temple's, the foundation of the temple isn't even laid down. They haven't even started to rebuild the temple. They started with the brazen altar because it was the priority for sacrificial worship. You know, it's amazing. Another thing I just want to mention, people will think that you can't worship God unless you're in a church or a comfortable environment or you have a roof over your head. Pastor Sal will remember when we went to Cuba back in 2004 and we found this church. I don't even know where the church was. I just know it was in the middle of nowhere. And it was built, basically it was a hut. And it was just this big open area. I think they used palm leaves as the roof. And to this day, and they decorated it with construction paper, like little kids do with those little like, loops. And they were draped all over this uh, very attractive pavilion built out of palms. And we got there, and I can remember j- just a couple of things to say. We got there, and the people were so excited to see us. They were in the, it was, you had to walk through this dark area. When you got out there in the middle of this field, the, here was this church. No walls, really just kind of a, a roof. And it was open, and it was just an opportunity for us to gather. And uh, we could see because there were lights there, but on the way there was no light. And it was just amazing to me. And a couple of things were interesting to me. One was that uh, this was probably one of the most beautiful churches I have ever been in because of the circumstances. They just did not have the ability to have the kind of church that we gather in every week. But what they had, they made the most of, and they worshiped God with all their hearts. One of the other things that stuck out to me is I shared, and uh, I was speaking through an interpreter at that point. I did not speak Spanish well enough to teach at that point back in 2004. But I I shared, we, we did some worship, Uh, songs, some worship songs, and uh, I shared a message, and then when I was done, the people wanted more. So Pastor Joe got up and shared another message. Now, can you imagine if we did that on a Sunday or Wednesday evening? I got done with my message, and then Pastor Sal or Mr. Frank back there, one of the guys got up and shared another message. I wonder how many people would be okay with that. Most of us would find a reason for like, what are they thinking? 
two messages. I barely make it for one. We come up with excuses for why that was too much. These people in the middle of the woods or in the middle of a field in this little church wanted two messages. One was not enough. And that's why I say for me personally, it was a life-changing experience. But I say that because you don't need to have an elaborate structure to worship the Lord. I know that firsthand. And you know that. Like I said, we were out in the parking lot during most of the pandemic. So yeah, you can worship the Lord. We were out under those canopies. So you see, worship is so much more than like a cathedral or statuary or stained glass windows, as beautiful as they are. And it's so important that we look at this example of the people of God and recognize they were obeying the word of the Lord. Nothing could keep them from obeying the word of the Lord. And they knew the one thing they had to have was a brazen altar. The rest of it was a nice to have. But they couldn't do the animal sacrifices unless they had the altar. So they built the altar first. And notice it wasn't easy. There were threats. There, there, there was danger involved because they obeyed the word of the Lord even though the surrounding peoples were threatening them. They worked and they worshipped despite the fear of an enemy attack. And they reinstituted the daily worship of the Lord after 48 years without a single sacrifice. 48 years. Now, if you think that's something, think about this. We know that the work is finished. Amen? Christ said it is finished. But God's people, the Jews, as a people, rejected Messiah. We know this. Not all Jews. There are many Jews that consider Jesus their Messiah. But as a people, in large part, the Jews have rejected Jesus as Messiah. And so their second temple was refurbished, really rebuilt, by Herod a few decades before Jesus. And then it was destroyed in about 70 AD. Okay, so you figure that's about 40 years after Christ died and was risen. When that temple was destroyed, the city wasn't destroyed for a couple of decades, but the the temple was destroyed first. And from that point in 70 AD, there has not been, think about this, there has not been a single animal sacrifice in Judaism. So 48 years went by before they could do that. But think about how many years have gone by since 70 AD. It's a long time, nearly 2,000 years, right? So what is it that the Jews of today want more than anything else? The brazen altar. They, they want to be able to do what these Jews were able to do, rebuild their temple, and specifically the brazen altar, so they can sacrifice animals again. Now, there's no need for the animal sacrifice, especially for the sin and the trespass offerings. One can argue the fellowship offerings have a place, maybe even the consecration offerings, but not the sin and the trespass offerings. But having said that, it hasn't been since 70 AD that a single animal sacrifice has taken place within Judaism. They've had synagogues, but no temple. 48 years had gone by, and they were able to reinstitute the daily worship. And they offered burnt offerings, the totally consumed offerings, the offerings of consecration to the Lord. And they obeyed the Lord, and they obeyed the word of the Lord, even though the financial cost was extremely high. What do I mean? Well, it was the seventh month, so they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles for a week with two days of absolutely no work, 
because that's the way the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated. And they were required to celebrate this feast by sacrificing great numbers of animals, according to Numbers chapter 29. And those animals cost money. Those animals were valuable. Think about it. I'm going to give you the number. Just kind of picture this in your mind. Eight goats, 105 lambs, 15 rams, 71 bulls, all chosen from the best of the flock. That's a high price. And 765.6 liters of fine flour mixed with oil. So it was expensive. It cost them something. That's why it's a worship of sacrifice. It cost them something to praise the Lord. Now today we're very fortunate in that he paid the price. Amen? It's finished. He paid the price. Price paid in full. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't worship God in a way where we worship him in sacrifice. That is, making sacrifices for him and his will in our lives and making sacrifices for others in our lives. It's okay to continue to worship the Lord in a way that costs us something. Indeed, it should probably cost us our very lives. As we lose our lives, we find them in Christ. I like what David said when the, when. Aruna, the uh, men who owned the Temple Mount, wanted to just sort of give the Temple Mount to David. He said, I will not worship the Lord with that which costs me nothing. He understood the importance of sacrificial worship, and so did they. And they offered these in addition to the daily and monthly offerings and the other appointed feasts. They offered more than what was required by the law through the free will and the peace offerings. Those were optional, and they did that too. That's pretty amazing. And they obeyed the word of the Lord by faith, trusting in the Lord's provision in the future. Because it's, it's like when we give to a ministry or to a church, we're trusting that what we give isn't just going out the window, okay? First of all, it's being invested in God's kingdom right? And we're making that sacrifice, wanting to see God use those resources for his glory. But we're also trusting that God will continue to repay to us a blessing and provide for our needs as we make sacrifices for the needs of others. And and that's a principle that runs straight through all of God's word. And it was true here. You know, they didn't wait for the Lord to provide for them before worshiping him. They didn't wait. They did it in advance by faith. I mean, they hadn't been in the land long enough to enjoy the harvest, yet they still celebrated the feast. They gave out of their need, not out of their abundance. They had no guarantee that the temple foundation would ever be laid, yet they still worshipped. Again, it reminds me of that little church in the middle of nowhere in Cuba. How do we worship the Lord? Well, the brazen altar was important to them, but so was the temple. And so the people of Israel laid the foundation of the temple as well. Let's read verses 7 through 9. It says, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters. They gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Yeshua, son of Yosedak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all 
who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Yeshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hadaviah, and the sons of Hanadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. So notice they, they put their priority not on the work of rebuilding, but on sacrificial, sacrificial worship first. They made sure that they were settled. They got there. They settled their families. Then they made sure the brazen altar was built. And now the priority is the temple. They were determined to rebuild the temple of the Lord, not just the brazen altar. They realized that it would be impossible to rebuild the temple without the assistance of others and without raw materials. They needed permission and the financial support of Cyrus to purchase supplies. And we'll see that when we get to chapter 6, there's a recording of this, but they did have his permission, as is mentioned here. They needed skilled laborers of the surrounding peoples to complete the work. They didn't have all the skilled laborers they needed. They needed the shipping of the coastal peoples to transport the lumber. They didn't have that. They needed that. And they had resources to purchase those things, but they didn't have access to them directly. But they were able to begin rebuilding the temple about six to seven months after they arrived in Jerusalem. That's when they were able to begin the rebuilding of the temple. They had already taken care of the altar right away, but now six to seven months later, they start rebuilding the temple. The Jewish leaders commissioned the work and provided the necessary supervision. That's what we read. You see, the Levites, who were the assistants to the priests, they were committed to supervising this entire project. This was their priority. And then we read a very interesting account, and I mentioned in in the introduction and opening that there was a section of this chapter that really touches my heart, and it's this section. We read in verses 10 through 13, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now, the temple hadn't been rebuilt. That would take some time, but they just put down the foundation. And they were worshiping God. But notice this in verse 12, and this is very touching. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, that's Solomon's temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. You know, I got a little Pentecostal in me, I know it, because I really enjoy when there's moments when we get a little loud. And I'll say this as well, as you minister in places like Cuba and Central America, you'll find that people know how to do that. They get very, very excited about the Word of God, and they say amen, and they, they just, they really offer a louder response than maybe we do in this country, or at least in this church. And that's very encouraging. But as I look at this description, 
They followed David's instructions, which are in the Word of God. So they followed Moses' instructions. They followed David's instructions. And the things that were recorded at Solomon's dedication, they followed. So they're following the Word of God. And they commemorated the completion of the temple foundation with praise and worship. They sang the very same song of thanksgiving to the Lord that they did in Solomon's day. And we read it already. They praised the Lord for his goodness and for his enduring love. Even though these people had been through a very difficult chapter in their history. I said 48 years without a sacrifice. 70 years of captivity taken to a foreign land, lost their city, lost their temple, lost many lives. And yet they were worshiping and praising God for his goodness and his enduring love. They recognized that without the Lord's intervention, the foundation would never have been laid. And so they worshiped God. But it's interesting because the oldest of them wept. They wept at the remembering of the original temple. Everyone was celebrating this very humble foundation, but there were men there old enough to remember Solomon's temple before it was destroyed in its glory. They remembered the glory days. They remembered the good old days. They remembered what they had and what they had lost. And I'm sure they were weeping for joy that there was an opportunity to rebuild, but I'm sure also there was a weeping at remembering what had been and what had been lost. This moment brought to their minds the splendor of the temple that had been destroyed. Oh, this temple would certainly have been modest by comparison to Solomon's temple. In fact, it was very modest. And when they finally rebuilt it, it was still modest. It wasn't until hundreds of years later when Herod the Great took the temple, actually took it apart brick by brick and rebuilt it to a much more glorious state. And that temple was in existence when Jesus visited Jerusalem. And then that temple, as I said already, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So this was a modest, humble beginning. But still, it was a beautiful moment, a moving experience. But I'm thinking that some of these older men who were lamenting and weeping, they would perhaps never see what they saw again. In fact, most of them would likely not live to see the temple when it was completed about 21 years later. It actually, and we'll see this as we go through the book of Ezra, it actually took them 21 years more to get this temple rebuilt because they were opposed by the enemy. The people, they kind of lost interest along the way. God raised up Haggai and Zechariah to encourage them. And then ultimately the temple was rebuilt, but it took 21 years. So these older gentlemen who were weeping probably never even saw it completed. Makes me think of that church designed by uh, Gaudi in Barcelona uh, that for hundreds of years, I guess they've been trying to build this church. It's not completed yet. Uh, I guess it's the sacred family or the church of the sacred family. So it's, it's a beautiful structure. I've seen pictures of it, but they're still building it. They're still building it. So, I mean, the people that started working on that church are long dead. They never even saw it get close to completed. There's people, you know, who've worked on it in our lifetime who have gone on and passed on, and it's still not completed. But the temple took 21 years. And so this is a very emotional moment. And I want to end our service tonight by reminding you that God is always doing a work. 
And you may not see it, and you may not get to see it finished. You may not get to see that person that you love and are ministering to come to Christ. You may only see the humble beginnings. You may only get to experience the foundation of God's work. Uh, There's people that have planted ministries and churches that were very humble by comparison to other ministries, but then long after they left this earth to be with Jesus, those churches became larger churches and more uh, effective in in ministering the gospel. And not that larger is better, but they became powerful ministries ministering to others the gospel of Jesus Christ. But those that planted the church never saw it. They never experienced it. Now listen, there's things going on in your life right now that seem small and humble by comparison to some other things in other people's lives. And I want to bring to your attention a scripture that I've always enjoyed because I've always liked the book of Zechariah. And I've I've shared this with you before, that Zechariah was a prophet that was raised up to encourage the people during those 21 years to rebuild the temple. And there was a message that Zechariah brought to the people to encourage them. And we'll end with this in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 8. This is what the prophet Zechariah shared. Actually, I might back up a little bit because um, this is another scripture you're probably familiar with. So he said in verse 6 in chapter 4 of Zechariah, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. We were just talking about Zerubbabel, the governor. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone, that's the keystone, that's the temple foundation, to shouts of God bless it, God bless it, Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. So that was a prophecy that was given about Zerubbabel, that he would begin and finish the work. But as I said, there were many alive at that time that didn't live long enough to see it. But notice it goes on to say, Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. That's what Zechariah said. And then this is the verse that I want to close with. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. That is, when they're just laying the foundation. If you don't know what a plumb line is, it's, we use them today. It's a, sometimes we use laser sights now. But a plumb line, it helps you to, to figure out what's level, what's plumb, and what's straight. And it, it's used when you're building a foundation. He's saying... Zerubbabel would lay the foundation, but that he would also finish the work. And then they would know that God had sent Zechariah to encourage them. But he also said, who despises the day of small things? Maybe today you're despising the day of small things. Things you're working on that haven't amounted to much yet. They're just the foundation. Let's talk about the children. They're small. You're investing in them, and you can think, oh, I don't know if I'm getting through. You know, they're four or five years old, six, seven, eight years old, and, you know, I don't really know if I'm getting through. Don't despise the day of small things. You are building a foundation for the future. We all know how important our children here at Calvary Chapel are, and that is a foundation that maybe right now doesn't seem like much. But in 20 years, who knows? 
Or maybe you're building a ministry, you're starting a Bible study, or even planting a church. And it's really easy early on to start to think, well, you know, we're just a couple of people like we were meeting in a Marriott down in Lyndhurst in a hotel room. Pat, you remember? And, 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 and now here we are, 20 some, almost 20 years later. Don't despise the day of small things in your life, in your family's lives, in ministry. Do not despise the day of small things. God is doing a mighty work, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouragement. We ask that you would continue to encourage us as we seek to build according to your will, your kingdom here on this earth. May you work through us. May you empower us with your spirit. May you enable us to build to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.